And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 39. Psalm chapter 39. This will be our second to last uh, psalm in our series, Summer in the Psalms. Next Sunday will be in Psalm 40. The following Sunday, Brother Mark Dooley, who was the uh, former senior pastor and now works at the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware, will be preaching. And then uh, the following Sunday on September 3rd, our brother John Fields, who gave the children's message, he'll be preaching. And then on the 10th, I'm super excited to have uh, Dr. Kevin Jones, who is going to be here for the Disciple Now weekend with our students. Uh, Lord willing, he will be filling the pulpit for us on September 10. So I invite you to pray for me as I use that as an opportunity to plan ahead, be looking into 2024 and even 25. I'll, I'll tell you, when I came to Leonardtown Baptist, I had a few sermons pent up, some built up kind of plans on where I would start, and we've been there. But we're kind of closing out some books like Exodus. We'll finish that this fall. We did the Gospel of Mark. We've done Colossians and some other things. So pray with me as I pray about uh, where the Lord would have us go as a congregation to his word so that it would instruct our hearts. I want to be mindful and prayerful that the Spirit would lead me to places in the Bible that we need, that the congregation of Leonardtown Baptist Church needs to be encouraged with and exhorted from. So um, we are going to finish our series in Exodus, though, when we come back after uh, the 10th on the 17th, we'll be back in Exodus 32. So that's where we are and where we're going over the next several weeks. And if you found Psalm 39 in your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This morning at the end of the session on the Baptist faith and message, I prayed from the Valley of Vision 
Um, and I'd like to pray this morning before I preach uh, a minister's preaching. Would you join me in a word of prayer? My master God, I'm desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people might be edified with divine truth, that an honest testimony might be born for thee. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer, a heart uplifted for grace and unction. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject, with fullness of matter and clarity of thought, proper expressions, fluency, fervency, a feeling sense of the things I preach, and grace to apply them to men's consciences. Keep me conscious all the while of my defects, and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Help me to offer a testimony for thyself and to leave sinners inexcusable in neglecting thy mercy. Give me freedom to open the sorrows of thy people and to set before them comforting considerations. Attend with power the truth preached and awaken the attention of my slothful audience. May thy people be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and help me to use the strongest arguments drawn from Christ's incarnation and sufferings that men might be made holy. I myself need thy support, comfort, strength, holiness, that I might be a pure channel of thy grace and be able to do something for thee. Give me then refreshment among thy people and help me not to treat excellent matter in a defective way or bear a broken testimony to so worthy a redeemer or be harsh in treating of Christ's death, its design and end from a lack of warmth and fervency. And keep me in tune with thee as I do this work of preaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In case you looked at the sermon outline this morning and you're not quite sure what to make of the title, let me help you. To repine means to feel or to express discontent. Repining is feeling or expressing discontent. And when God is refining us through his discipline, can we all just say that's uncomfortable? It makes us discontented. The the writer of Hebrews says, for example, in Hebrews 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is always uncomfortable and can often lead us to repine God's refining work. In Psalm 39, David is filled with discontent over God's heavy rebuke and the Lord's discipline. But from what we read this morning, we can learn from David's prayer what to do when you're repining God's refining. David found this prayer so useful for those who worship God that he submitted it to Jeduthun, the choir master, and a court musician from the tribe of Levi, whom David himself had appointed to be a musician. He uh, appointed him along with Asaph and Heman to oversee worship at the tabernacle when it was in Gibeon. Jeduthun was responsible for playing several instruments and for musical prophesying. He also went by the short form Ethan. You find that in other parts of scripture. And his descendants carried on his work of ministry through music all the way through the time of Hezekiah, Josiah, and even up to the time of Nehemiah. Now, scholars are uh, speculating about whether or not 
Jeduthun was the one who was employed to bring this psalm into the worship setting for the Israelites. Or perhaps if he, like we do in our modern times, was the author of the tune to which this song was set. Was this kind of like according to, you know, the tune by Jeduthun. Whatever the case, David knew that other believers would be prone to, here it is, repine, to feel or express their discontent when the Lord was disciplining them. So thanks to the Holy Spirit and thanks to David's pen, we have Psalm 39 to help us today. So what are we to do when we are tempted to repine when God is refining us? First of all, if you feel discontentment about God's discipline, refrain from complaining. Refrain from complaining to others. David begins by acknowledging our natural temptation to complain to other people when we are suffering. And when our Heavenly Father is disciplining us, the unpleasant nature of that discipline may tempt you to have an emotional outburst to your family or your friends, or these days, heaven forbid, on social media for the world to read. But David teaches us it's far better to put a sock in it than to blab about your problems to the world. Because, and there's a reason, those who are far from God may not understand the complexity of how he deals with his children. And it could result in bringing disrepute to the Lord's name. You see, in verse 8 of Psalm 39, we see David tip his hand. What he was trying to avoid was be becoming the scorn of fools. Becoming the scorn of fools. They would take his repining, his whining about his present circumstance, and they would scorn David and his God. So, as long as the wicked are in his presence, as David says in verse 1, he muzzled his mouth. He guarded his tongue. And beloved, can you just say with me today, that's hard to do. That is hard to do. Someone has said it is easier to rule the tongue than to rule the world. The book of James warns us about the danger of an unguarded tongue. We see it played out, sadly, in the terrible and terrifying wildfires in Hawaii. James says the tongue is like a spark that can set a forest on fire. The truth is all unguarded ways are typically unholy ways. So it's better to be silent than to say things that can be used against us or used against our God. But if you must speak, okay, so if you must express your discontentment about God's discipline, refer your demurring to the Lord. Now, I know this is my second $10 word this morning. So let me give you a definition of demurring. To demur in this context means to raise an objection. To raise an objection. So refer your objections God word. Instead of complaining about your present condition as a result of God's discipline to the world, David teaches us, take those objections straight to the Lord himself. You see how in verse four, after David's heart boils to the fever pitch in verse three, and he cannot contain himself any longer, he cries upward 
to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon writes, It is well that the vent of his soul was Godward and not toward man. Oh, if my swelling heart must speak, Lord, let it speak with thee. Even if there be too much natural heat in what I say, you will be more patient with me than man. And upon thy purity, it can cast no stain. Whereas if I speak to my fellows, they may harshly rebuke me or else learn evil from my irritability. I'm thankful for having learned this lesson from my youth pastor growing up. Brother Bill Darden was speaking of him uh, this morning. We were talking about Brother Bobby Welch and Mark Hall was my youth pastor. And we would have our times of worship in the youth group. And he would say, because he was a student of the life and person of David, he would say to us, talk to God. Pour out your heart to God. He can handle all of your emotions. Do you remember what it was like to be a teenager when the passions rage even stronger than they still do now? He can handle your emotions. He can handle your frustrations, your passion, your disappointment, your problems. There's nothing you will ever share with God that will shock him or surprise him. He's God. So just pour it all out before him. And I think that is extraordinarily biblical advice. You see, dear friends, David understood his only hope of recovery from the situation in which he found himself was to turn to the Lord. Because he says in verse 9, he recognizes it was the Lord himself who had brought him low. God was the one who had brought him low in discipline. So he rightly acknowledges that if God is the one that brought me low. God is the one who can bring me out and give relief. Verse 7, I think, is the central thought of the psalm where David says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. As the old hymn says, What a friend we have in Jesus, you know it. In trials, temptations, weaknesses, despondence, loneliness, any encumbrance we have, Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I agree with the preacher who once said, I've often wished I could take back an angry word, but I have never wanted to take back a prayer when I went and asked God for help. I've often wished I could take back my complaining to the people around me. I've never regretted going to the Lord and asking help me. So what happens? Look what happens as David begins to shift his eyes away from his low estate and to his precious Lord. He begins to see things from the Lord's point of view. So while you are enduring what may be a lengthy rebuke from the Lord, reflect on God's perspective. Reflect on God's perspective. I find verses four through six to be so poignant. It's no wonder that Brother John shared those with us specifically because they also are kind of at the heart of the wisdom of this psalm. When David finally unloads before the Lord, he starts to face all of these unwelcome facts about his present circumstance and life in general. These facts are God's facts. And he starts to see things as God sees them. The New American Standard, which is a more literal translation, translates verse 5 to say, My lifetime is as nothing 
in your sight. My lifetime is as nothing in your sight, the way God sees it. Do, do you seek the Lord's perspective when you reflect on the big picture realities of your life? Or perhaps the better question for our day in this age of distraction and amusement is, do you ever even take time to reflect on God's perspective? How brief life is. I think one of Satan's greatest tools in our age to keep us from ever thinking long about these things are our screens, devices, whatever we have, things that amuse us. Incidentally, before the age of the iPhone, Neil Postman, if you want to take a note of this, Neil Postman wrote a prescient book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And I encourage you, it's a worthy read, get the audiobook, listen to it on a long drive or while you're mowing your lawn like I do, amusing ourselves to death. The word itself, amusement, means not thinking. <laughs> like apolitical means not political. Amusement means not musing, not pondering. But do you see when all of the joys and amusements of life have been stripped away from David, he demonstrates how a wise person turns reflective. A wise individual wants to grasp and understand the brevity of their own life because they've begun to see the stark reality, the frailty of the human condition. I was uh, preparing for this message this week and an article popped up on my distraction device. But it was pertinent to this message. It was an article about a woman named Karen uh, who was she and her husband had saved up and saved up and saved up for retirement. On their first trip around the world or wherever they were going, she broke her shoulder and got into a serious state of needing rehab and recovery. And I found the quote of the author of the article pertinent to what we're studying. They said, poignant notes like this from readers have added to the growing realization of what Karen hints at. Namely, we have been in denial about human frailty. The author at the Wall Street Journal is getting the point of Psalm 39. We have been in denial about human frailty. So David gets alone with God and he muses and he ponders and he reflects. I think the Selah in verse 5 is not insignificant. Though the term is not completely understood, many suggest it is a musical pause for reflection on what was previously said or sung. In this case, David had just said in verse 5, man is like a breath. At his best, a breath. That same word is used in verse 11. And in the English Standard Version, it's translated as nothing. Surely for nothing... My uh, footnote in my Bible on verse 6 says, uh, Surely as a breath, they are in turmoil. This is a key word used throughout the psalm. And, and the same Hebrew word is what the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, we get the translated word meaningless or vanities. All the same underlying Hebrew word. So whereas we notice, for example, the resemblance between Psalm 37 and, say, the Proverbs, 
And Psalm 38 about David being an innocent sufferer may have reminded us of the writing called Job. Psalm 39 has the wisdom of Ecclesiastes shining through it. David tells us, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, that a mindless rush for material possessions is ludicrous. A mindless rush for material possessions is ludicrous. Jesus taught the same wisdom in his parable of the rich man who was obsessed with building bigger and bigger barns to store all of his things. He says, the rich man will say to his soul, soul, I love that. I'm going to say to myself, self, soul, say to your soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It's like the psalmist. It says, you, you heap up the wealth and you don't know who's going to gather it. Verse 6 of the psalm. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I'm asking the question, and please do not take an equivalence here. Like we said, sin does not automatically mean suffering. The man born blind was not as a result of sin. So also, I'm asking a question, could it be? Not that there is a one-to-one relationship here. Could it be? The Lord's discipline in your life is him sanding off the rough edges of your disobedience to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So, again, could it be? Again, stone thrown over a fence. It's the dog that gets hit that yelps, okay? So I'm not picking on anybody. I have nobody in mind. But hear me. If a nice, fat retirement account becomes your God, it may not be irony or bad luck that you are in too poor of health like Karen was to enjoy it. It could be the Lord lovingly stripping away a false God and reminding you to be rich toward him, lest your treasure and your heart be too captivated with this fleeting world and its goods. It could be the Lord teaching you lovingly, don't get too in love with this stuff. It's temporary. From the example of riches, I could go on and you could go on, and we don't have to stay picking on that. We could come up with a dozen other examples of little g gods that the Lord sometimes has to lovingly pry away from our white-knuckled hands. That's what verse 11 is about. David says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you, that is God, consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is like a breath. The commentator, the expositor's Bible commentary says, Yahweh takes away people's own definition of meaning in life, and he consumes their pleasures and wealth like a destructive moth in this verse. Have you ever thought of God doing that? Lovingly taking away things that your heart has become too set upon. Why? Because he is training his children not to set our affections on the things of this passing world, but on eternal things. Hear me, the word of God, the souls of men, 
Everlasting fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. The new creation, a lasting city. And this leads to the last point for today. What to do when you're repining God's refining work. And that is, while you endure God's lengthy rebuke, find redress in being a guest. And redress is defined as a remedy from a grievance. So as you air your grievance and express that to the Lord, like David, one remedy for that and what that feels like, what feels like a lengthy rebuke, is to look to the Father and remember you are just a guest on this earth. Other translations of verse 12 include the term alien, temporary resident. You're a sojourner. You are a stranger. King David knew that the Israelites were always supposed to consider themselves temporary residents of the promised land. God had said in Leviticus 25 and 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Now this concept was one of the Old Testament pointers to the New Testament hope of heaven. Uh, So the, the writer of Hebrews, for example, explains that these, meaning the Old Testament saints, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged, they got it. They understood what David did. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. The faith of Abraham and David's other forefathers Indeed, the faith of every person whose hope is in God is that this earth is a temporary residence. It is not our eternal abode. Tents for now. A glorious city for eternity. Once David understood God's perspective and started to adopt it, he was able to begin making sense of what felt to him like a never-stopping refining fire. For our youth group and their new name, he was being forged. Youth Leadership Council, Brother Zach Trenton, he was being forged. He was being heated up in the fire of discipline and shaped with a hammer, pounded into what God wanted him to be. And in this psalm, like Psalm 6, David was beginning to wonder, look God, if I'm being shaped into the vessel you are making out of me, when are you going to ever put that finished product into use in this life? Like I'm... I'm tired. I'm weary from this refining. And I want to be put in use in the way that you intended me to be. How long? He retorts in Psalm 6. In death, there is no remembrance of you. Like if I die, then the vessel can't be put in use. God, I'm going to be in the grave. Who gives you praise there? But here in Psalm 39 and there in Psalm 6, I think in the Old Testament, this concept of being a guest in the land is the key that points David and especially us who have the benefit of the good news of David's eternal and resurrected son to the hope of our own resurrection. Like David knew there was more. You've made known to me the paths of life. There's fullness of joy in your presence, eternal pleasures at your right hand, he says at the end of Psalm 16. So when he thinks about how long, oh Lord, he knows he's just a guest. He knows there's something greater and it points us who know that this is about the hope of the resurrection. So, so assured are we 
that this world is not our home, we can join Paul in saying that any discipline, affliction, or suffering in this life is, as he says in Romans 8.18, light and momentary when compared with the weight of eternal glory that will be revealed to us. So, dear brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today. We're almost home. We're almost home. You say, Pastor Jason, I'm weary. Dear Saint, we're almost home. Matt Papa and Matt Boswell's new song that the choir sang recently is an appropriate way to close. We're just a hand breath away, dear Saint. Shortest measure, shortest unit of measure there was. That's how close. They write, don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now. We're almost home. That promised land is calling. We're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. Can I put a parenthesis in their lyrics and say, in light of Psalm 39, otherwise the Lord might make your soul ready for you. Refine you. No turning back, we're almost home. This journey, ours together, we are almost home. Unto that great forever, we are almost home. What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne. Come, faint of heart, we're almost home. And the refrain, almost home, We're almost home, so press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home. Amen.